Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. And now joining us from Ambrosetti Forum in Shinobia, Jacob Frankel. He's a former David Rockefeller professor at the University of Chicago, governor of the Bank of Israel, and now, of course, with J.P. Morgan uh, International. Professor Frankel, thank you so much for joining us this morning. I want to go to Brexit on a first-order condition. We have endless guests telling us the current account deficit dynamics of the United Kingdom are key. You are truly one of the experts in the world on this. Are you concerned? Concerned about the depth or the duration of a current account deficit in England? Well, obviously, uh, current account deficits, if they are too long and too large, are not uh, very sustainable. But I should say that in contrast with the original initial uh, doomsday predictions, uh, the world has not gone under and Europe has not gone under. I believe that what is happening now is the start of the realization that Europe needs the UK capital market at least as much, and if not more, than the UK capital markets needs Europe. So I believe and hope that common sense will prevail as the right. negotiations uh, move on. Uh, Mr. Frankel, when I look at uh, negative rates, Stanley Fisher was quite adamant. It's been an interesting and important experiment. Do you agree with the vice chairman that nations should continue to study negative rates, do negative rates, and even distribute them more across their societies? Well, I always agree with Stanley Fisher about uh, issues that are of uh, great interest, and uh, it is an interesting experiment and experience. I do hope that uh, it will not become a generalized picture of the world's financial markets. Negative interest rates are not healthy for the financial system, and low interest rates are also not healthy for a sustainable financial system. We have had a very significant period of dislocation in the world economy. Monetary policy all over the world has been exceedingly expensive and, uh, in fact, very, very productively saving the world from a deep recession. But now is the time to, to agree that monetary policy should not be the only game in town, that interest right. rates should but aim to be normalized, and that's where we should move. But, Mr. Frankel... I spoke to Jean-Claude Trichet earlier from Chernobyl as well. We speak to politicians on a daily basis, and everyone agrees that it shouldn't be the only game in town. But they've agreed on this for the last four years. What needs to change so that central banks really aren't the only game in town? Well, uh, when you started uh, being the only game in town, you were the savior. But over time, uh, these things that are not sustainable cannot continue uh, forever. Everyone recognizes that 
the name of the game for the resuming of economic growth and, and increased productivity, which has been a long-term problem with us, cannot be solved by monetary policy. That's where well, fiscal policy, that's where structural policies is called in. So yes, because of responsibility of the central banks, they have been acting, but we should not overburden them because they are not equipped to be able to do what it takes to improve productivity. Here in Chernobyl, a lot of the discussion was placed on education, on training, on removing distortions. That's the name of the game. And therefore, right, but it's uh, a by, by looking at the coin under the lamppost is not the solution. It's a timeline issue, and it's always been the case. Jacob Frankel, uh, we have seen also a lot of thinkers around the world talking about changing mandates of central banks. We've talked about changing the mandate of a 2% target for inflation. Certainly, that's one of the uh, papers that got a lot of traction in the U.S. two weeks ago. Do we need to think about central banks differently? Do we need to, to reset everything we know about what they can do, can't do under mandate? I uh, did not hear each word of the question, but if you were talking about the mandates of central banks, uh, the nature of the economies have changed, and the mandate of central banks accordingly have now expanded themselves from dealing with price stability to also focusing on financial stability. And if you are focusing on financial stability, you should realize right. that the success of central bank cannot be judged only in terms of arresting inflation, but also in terms of securing the stability of the financial system. Zero interest rates will not secure the stability of the financial system. In fact, it may create right. bubbles and disconnections between the real economy and the financial economy. Jacob Frankel, I got one more question. You are the heritage of the University of Chicago, the Chicago of Raghun Rajan, the Chicago of Luigi Zingales, Randall Krosner, and others. Are guys like you paying enough attention to the financial and the banking system. Are economists like Bruce Kasman, are they working in a vacuum where they should pay attention to the banks like Deutsche Bank, like Commerce Bank and the others? Absolutely. The role of the banks are critical for the, for the functioning of the modern economy. And I think that's one of the points that we need to keep in mind all the time when you are having uncertainty in the regulatory framework, where you are having policies that are forcing a change in the business model okay. of the financial industry, where you put insurance companies under tremendous what? strain. The issue is not what happens to this sector or another, but rather the recognition that without a healthy financial system, you will not have a growing economy. And that's one of the points that the populism does not realize. If you want to have growth and employment, you must have strong right. banks and well-functioning banking system. Listen, folks, Jacob Frankel said what I'm not allowed to say, but Professor Frankel can say as for us. He is the chairman of J.P. Morgan International, Jacob Frankel of Chicago. and Tom King Jobs Day, but also occurring an important conversation in Vladivostok. Our editor-in-chief, John Micklethwaite, 
in conversation with the president of the Russian Federation. The backdrop here is so much about Russia and international relations. Here is Vladimir Putin on the young leadership of Saudi Arabia. As far as I'm aware, Mr. Salman is the deputy crown prince, but that's a detail. He's a very energetic state figure, and we really have struck up a good relationship. This is a man who knows what he wants and knows how to achieve his goals. But at the same time, I think he's a very reliable partner with whom you can reach agreements and can be certain that those agreements will be honored. Uh, and there is uh, Vladimir Putin in conversation with our John Mikothwaite. And now joining us, we're really thrilled to bring you this morning, the former Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Ambassador to NATO, and of course our Ambassador to Greece, Nick Burns. Ambassador Burns, good morning. Um, Vladimir, good morning. V Vladimir Putin has evolved since the collapse of Yeltsin in 1999. Let us begin with his power, because power is everything within Russian history. Is he powerful to the Russian people? Without question. You remember he came to power um, because he was able to put down some of the terrorist threat uh, that had bedeviled Russia in the late 1990s. He was, was security-minded. He restored a sense of honor, I think, for the Russian people um, and security in the late 1990s and just before and after 9-11. That's how he made his mark in Russian politics and as Russian president. But, of course, he's also, I think, become more popular because of his nationalist policies, the invasion policies to which we object, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, and, of course, the invasion and illegal occupation and annexation of Crimea in 2014. These have boosted his popularity ratings, his support among the Russian public, because they're seen as being highly nationalist and supporting this vision that Russia should be the strongest country in its region. Now, we Americans reject this, but Russian politics, of course, right. plays out in an entirely different well, stage. Uh, Ambassador, let me bring in David Gura. David? Yeah, Ambassador, you, you were on a, a study group with retired General Jim Jones looking at the role of NATO, and, and you had strong words for Russia. You said Russia is acting in an assertive and predatory fashion. It is redividing Europe. You've given us the d domestic outlook on Vladimir Putin. What is the, the broader Western international outlook on the role he's he's playing right now? And and what NATO has been doing, indeed should be doing, to counter that? Well, Putin is deeply distrusted now um, in Europe, certainly, and in North America, because of the invasion of, of, of Crimea, because of the, of the division of the Donbass region in, in southeastern Ukraine. He's divided Ukraine as well as occupied Crimea. And you've seen now these major economic sanctions put on Putin by the European Union, by the United States and Canada. Those sanctions are going to remain. And so he's an isolated figure. And as he goes to the G20 summit, uh, in China in a couple of days. He's obviously someone who's trying to get out from un under those sanctions. NATO has had to respond in a very tough way because in addition to those two occupations in in Crimea and that I talked about in, in the other part of Ukraine, he's been pressuring the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Poland. They're all NATO members. So NATO has moved uh, four battalions of troops, in one battalion each, into each of those countries in order to say to Putin, you can't cross this line because this is NATO territory. And General Jones and I, General Jim Jones and I, led an Atlantic Council study on NATO, which asserted that we need to rebuild American military power in Europe, 
We certainly need to protect those countries from Putin. I think he's a he's he's a cynical leader. He's opportunistic, but he respects power. And so if we right. project power in Europe, he's going to have to respect that. Uh, Ambassador, I, I look at an 833-mile border between Finland and Russia that Americans are lar- largely ignorant of. State now the tension of the Baltic states and Scandinavia with Vladimir Putin. Well, in addition to his predatory policies in Georgia and Ukraine, um, the, the Russian military has been very active in the Baltic region, um, in the Baltic Sea. They've been buzzing NATO aircraft and NATO uh, vessels. There have been a lot of reports of Russian submarines active in places like Stockholm. And so now you see in northern Europe, in countries that were formerly neutral during the Cold War, Sweden and Finland in particular, they're not joining NATO, but they're very close military partners of NATO because they fear a resurgent Russia. And they understand that the only power in the world that can really block Russia and contain Russian power is the United States. And that's the United States, of course, projects power in Europe through the NATO alliance. So it's been remarkable to see this change of opinion in Europe. Yeah. There was a time, um, of course, 10, 15 years ago, a lot of anti-Americanism, not so much now. Well, European countries understand the U.S. is important, important to their security. Too short of a visit today. Uh, Nicholas Burns, thank you so much. Ambassador Burns, our former ambassador to Greece. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role as to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. We now welcome on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg Television Worldwide, David Gurr and Tom Keenan. Uh, with us, as always, from Janus Capital with a, a spiffy one-year track record with the Janus Unconstrained Fund, one William Gross. Uh, Bill, you're generating almost equity-like returns. How are you doing that? Well, it takes a little bit of leverage, does it not, uh, or a lot of luck. Uh, in, in this case, you know, the Unconstrained Fund, as are most unconstrained funds and our, our Many hedge funds, uh, you know, have a little bit of leverage. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say that Janus Unconstrained is, uh, is levered two to one, and so you can take advantage of the, the low borrowing rate and lever it a little bit to produce equity-like returns. I mean, that's uh, basically what yeah. Bridgewater suggests, do they not? Well, w- within that is you've got to work within a Fed milieu. Does this jobs report today, with the churn of it, with yields in a little bit, with the yen stronger, does this signal a Fed that needs to move in September or November, no one talking about that, or do we wait for the end of the year December or not? Yeah, I, I heard you uh, you and David Tom ta- talking about it, and it's hard to, to gauge it initially, but I, I would agree. say uh, we're sort of... We're sort of arguing about the number of angels on the head of a pin here. Um, we had 20,000 upward revision, and this was about 20,000 light. And, you know, the, uh, it's a little bit below the 6- and 12-month average, I guess, of job creation. But um, I think September is on. I don't think it's 100% on, but I think it's close to 100%. Uh, I think Janet Yellen told us, not just in Jackson Hole, but uh, in other places that she looks at jobs, jobs, and jobs, and that GDP is not uh, on the top of her list. And if, if these types of jobs uh, don't do it, I'm not quite sure what does. 
Right. Uh, uh, David Gura, three months moving average, 232,000 on non-farm payrolls. That's a ginormous number. Six month, a little less, 175. But critically, David Gura, the one year moving average, 204,000 non-farm payrolls. Bill, I want to ask you, after the last jobs number came out, 255,000, you said that's good job growth, but you were not satisfied that it was going to lead to a September hike. What's changed your calculus? What's made you think now that September could be on the table? Well, I think just uh, Fed speak. I mean, I, I listened uh, to Yellen and I listened to uh, Stan Fisher. And, you know, basically at Jackson Hole, uh, Yellen said uh, that if things continue as they um, as they are continuing, yes, you just pointed out that 200,000 is the 12-month average on jobs. But, you know, I would say that uh, she would think that this is a continuation of a positive trend that you know, promotes a... Uh, 25 basis point hike. It's almost been a year. Um, I think that's a, a gradual type of slope. I think Fisher, you know, uh, seconded her uh, motion, so to speak, and, and maybe even uh, upped it a little bit in terms of his hawkishness. And so uh, those, those two drive it. And I, I think right. uh, September is the one and done for the year. Uh, Bill, I, I want to head now to something that I think is absolutely crucial which is, do you suggest that the Fed and economists worldwide are ignoring the financial and banking system? With all the challenges you see, particularly in European banking, do they have to, does the Fed have to fold in negative rates, their central bank actions, with the somewhat desperation and financial instability of our banking system? Yeah, I was hoping you'd ask that question. That's a great question. Uh, to be fair, Jillian Tett brings out a nice article today in the yeah. Financial Times. But, you know, I've been on this before, and so have you. Um, you know, I, I suspected Jackson Hole, uh, where they talked about uh, monetary challenges and new uh, modeling, uh, perhaps, uh, going forward, that they, uh, they didn't really look at the effect on the financial economy, and they didn't in 2006 and 2007 and 2008. They didn't know what was going on. They did uh, read Minsky, so to speak. Min Min Minsky uh, had written 10, 15, 20 years before that uh, the real economy and the financial economy are intimately connected. And we yes. saw that, you know, with Lehman. And so now your question is, you know, do they really look at the effect on the financial economy? I would say this, you know, the, in the terms of the real economy, they've lowered their long-term growth assumption. They've lowered our star, which basically is the long-term real uh, neutral interest rate, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't investigate, um, you know, the effect of R star on financial asset prices. We know uh, that it probably affects tips prices and probably bond prices, but how does it affect right. equity risk premium? How does it affect equity and, and high-yield bond spreads? No discussion whatsoever of that in terms of potential asset bubbles from these new R star and other uh, you know, right. lower growth estimates on the long term. But, uh, Mr. Gross, I've got to pin you down on this. This is absolutely critical. Dominic Constant at Deutsche Bank is adamant that this is a central bank regime that will shift to a discussion of financial instability. When you're on your desk at Janus, when you've got your three Bloombergs and your Monroe Trader <laughs> fired up looking at the financial system, does Bill Gross suggest we will see financial instability into next year? Well, I think it's a definite possibility because we have growing leverage, not necessarily in the United States, let's be fair, although on the corporate side, yes, but we have substantial leverage in China, and China's the uh, economic engine, and to the extent that uh, financial leverage in China at some 
point presents a problem, and even Chinese officials suggest that that's a possibility that leverage is high. Yes, that um, you know, in 2007 and 8, it was the subprime, so to speak, uh, that uh, broke the camel's back. Yeah, it, China's leverage is huge and enormous and much bigger than the subprime. So, yeah, I, I would suggest a financial moment is possible uh, because wherever there is leverage and high leverage and historically high leverage, you know, there's the possibility of a moment. And uh, Minsky pointed that out. He said stability leads to instability. And uh, we've got stability now, but uh, there's a definite question as to whether interest rates in that negative camp, uh, you know, produce instability in asset prices and therefore uh, potential popping of bubbles. Bill, very quickly here, what about savers? Tom asked Stan Fisher about the financial sector. He asked them about uh, uh, savers as well. Uh, and I remember very vividly Stan Fisher saying in economics there are trade-offs. To what degree do you think the FOMC is paying attention to how savers are suffering right now? Well, they mentioned it, David, I, uh, and I, I'm struck by that. I'm stunned by that. And basically said savers will have to wait. And, and Yellen said savers will have to wait. And I suppose, you know, in the ordinary scheme of things that perhaps that's uh, logical. It basically means let's get the economy, you know, on a, a straightforward uh, movement. But, uh, you know, savers can uh, can start saving two or three years well, from now with a more attractive interest rate. Okay. But Mr. Gross has agreed to be with us today for 1,438 minutes or at least till he gets his decision right. Was, I was on the edge, Bill Gross, of Joe. It was like on the edge of Joe Granville. I mean, no, not a broken Bill, watch. Yeah, a broken watch. I mean, <laughs> great respect for that. And folks, this harkens back many, many decades to my youth and one uh, Joseph Granville about being right twice a day. Bill Gross, I would suggest you've actually been relatively nuanced in your uproar about central banks in general and their limited toolkit to solve real economy effects. The heart of that. And the heart of your, let me get the number again, 1,438 minutes is you need fiscal policy to help you out. Do you see any indication that the fiscal authorities will come to the rescue? Well, not yet. Uh, and there are uh, many other advocates now relative to a year or two years ago, uh, Tom, in the press and uh, uh, on your program and, and so on. So the, I think the mood is beginning to shift, but uh, politically it is what we have to worry about, and I suppose we'll see that uh, to some extent in the U.S. election. But but fiscal spending, whether it be for infrastructure, which everyone seems to support, or you know other uh, you know types of spending, you know it, I think is essential. Uh, we we all sort of know that government spending perhaps is not as uh, productive as private spending, but when the private sector, you know, basically leaves a hole, as Keynes would have argued back in the 30s and the 40s, then it's up to the government, at least temporarily, to fill that hole. And and, and I think, you know, uh, legislation like in Germany, where uh, they basically mandated a balanced budget and the the shift of other European countries in that direction, you know, basically is hard to reverse. But I, I think ultimately. Uh, if if monetary policy is is basically, you know, played out, uh, and I think it is, um, I think rates should be higher, not lower. Uh, then you know, fiscal spending, uh, hopefully productive spending, you know, fills in some of the gap. But there are, uh, as uh, Summers would point out, and as I pointed out, with the new normal, there are structural problems that will, you know, promote 
a lower real growth rate going forward that uh, is almost unavoidable. Bill, let's talk about growth in your most recent investment outlook, which you talked about with our colleague Eric Schatzker a couple days ago. Golf is the theme. You and John riding both. We were just speaking with talking about golf and economics here. But you said that practice can't buy you a hole in one. You look at Janet Yellen as a forecaster, perhaps one of the most practiced forecasters out there. She's got to be concerned with where she sees growth right now, 1.2% year over year. How sympathetic are you to her uh, as she's weighing that, as she and the committee weigh a rate rise? Well, I'm very sympathetic uh, because I know that the Fed and other central banks and, and uh, most of uh, you know, economic society is dependent upon models. Uh, we look to history to foretell the the, the future, but I, I think the problem is is that when you get to the zero bound and the negative interest rate levels where uh, $13 trillion worth of uh, sovereign debt is in the negative camp and really isn't an asset, but it's a liability for those that hold those uh, particular pieces of paper that, you know, that the rules perhaps change. We see that in science, you know, with the, the Newtonian physics and the, the law of uh, small objects, which uh, Einstein initiated. And so, you know, 0% interest rates can change things and change models. And I, I don't think, uh, because that's a subjective type of thought and not subject to, you know, historical modeling more than five or six years, I, I think it's very difficult for them. And I'm sympathetic, but I, I think we need new thinking. And that supposedly was what the Jackson Hole you know, symposium was all about. But I saw very little of that. You talk about expanding that toolkit often. You cite Kevin Warch's work at, at Stanford uh, on that. Uh, going back to Jackson Hole and the conversation there about negative rates, didn't come up in Janet Yellen's speech at all. Stan Fisher told Tom that he uh, was watching it from a sort of theoretical vantage going forward here. When you look back at Jackson Hole, when you look back at what you've heard here over these last few weeks from policymakers, what's your sense of how they're weighing negative interest rates, if at all? What, what role that's playing in the toolkit, if any? Well, I, I don't think they do. I, I mean, uh, some uh, such as uh, you know, Kuroda in Japan are beginning to suggest that uh, maybe uh, negative interest rates have a negative type effect, but I don't think they do. And, and you mentioned Kevin Warsh. You know, I, I think uh, you know, he had the courage to challenge the current Fed's orthodoxy that believes that lower and lower interest rates and negative interest rates elevate asset prices, which in turn stimulates economic growth and inflation. And he said in his op-ed, I think it was very Mensch-like, very Volcker-like, although he's out of office, so to speak. He said the Fed needs new thinking. Um, he said, uh, you know, the Williams uh, types of proposals where uh, you increase the yeah. inflation target to 3 or 4% instead of 2 focus on nominal GDP. He said they were Band-Aids. And he said, uh, you know, we really need some new thinking. My uh, addition to the new thinking has been what I've been talking about for 6 to 12 months is that uh, these interest rates are have a negative effect <clears> and that they should gradually raise interest rates and perhaps more gradually than they're thinking about. Right, Bill. I want to get to the heart of the matter and bring it back to bond management and investment. No one has been smarter on this than Zvi Bodhi of Boston University. He was way out front on a reduced real rate reduce nominal yield compression and all. How are you going to manage, how do institutional portfolios like pension funds with long-term obligations manage, and how do our viewers and listeners manage given lower for longer, 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 longer? Zvi Bodhi of Boston University nailed this. It's a Zvi Bodhi world. How do we manage our way through it? 
You accept the new world, Tom. Uh, you know, basically up until now, the, the fight has been on, and the, the direction of the fight and the, you know, the temper of the fight has been to increase risk and to increase leverage in order to maintain a semblance of historical returns. I, I, I think, let's go to pension funds. I, I think what they've done, you know, basically is, is reduce by a little bit, um, you know, by a 25 basis points, their assumption in terms of long-term return on assets. Right. And what does that do, do for them? You know, it, it basically does very little. It doesn't force them to make additional contributions. doesn't force the state or the entity to increase taxes in order to fill the hole. And, and so um, that, along with accounting changes and so on, it's defer, defer, defer. I, I think what pension funds, what savers, what uh, investors have to do is simply accept that it's a new world and base their spending assumptions, their taxation, um, and other policies on the fact that it's not a 10% world, it's a 4 to 5% world at best. It's a 4 or 5% world at best. You can't capture that with sovereign full faith and credit. Where does Bill Gross go, or where do our viewers and listeners go in the new world that Janet Yellen and others have given us? Well, it's very difficult. Let's put it this way. All assets basically uh, are volatility related. We know a treasury bill has no volatility, and that's why it yields uh, so little. But basically, longer-term bonds, even sovereign bonds, you know, yield more. Uh, basically, equity risk premiums induce a uh, volatility component. And so, you know, measuring and gauging volatility going forward and taking advantage of it is perhaps one way, but it it is a dangerous way. It's like what we talked about before in terms of stability and instability. One of these days, uh, volatility, uh, instead of the VIX at 12, will be the VIX at 20, and, and yeah. uh, the seller of volatility will come up short. So everything's dangerous in this type of world. How do we continue yeah. to earn 10%? We don't. We look for 4 to 5, and we do it well, you know, with as little risk as possible. Bill Gross, thank you so much for your 1,438 <laughs> minutes. We took a few today. of them. We took a few. And the two precious minutes. We'll get to that another time. Mr. Gross is with Janus Capital, and I can't say enough about all of his essays. And the recent one is absolutely scathing about where we are in this odd, great distortion. Most interesting day, a nuanced day with the jobs report, most research reports saying this is a Fed that will wait. We'll see how that moves forward, uh, agreeing with Vice Chairman Fisher that they will look at the data as the data comes in. We take a reading on that, which is what you do with the engineer from Penn. Scott Mather joins us now from PIMCO. Scott, good morning. Good morning. You take a reading on the data. Does your world change with this jobs report? Uh, don't think the world changes. We uh, obviously it's a kind of a weak report across the board, so it doesn't uh, doesn't change our view that we've had that uh, September is very unlikely. Uh, but then that makes December, of course, much more likely after that. So, you know, the market's beginning to price that mm. in. I think there's only a you know small you know teens sort of uh, market price in terms of uh, probability for September, and we think that's probably right. Why is no one talking about November? Well, certainly, uh, you know, moving a few days before the election would seem to be uh, probably not something the Fed would want to do. So I think that's, you know, the market's right to say that's just extremely unlikely. When I look at Scott Mather, centered around a three-month moving average on non-farm payrolls that anyone would agree 
is miraculous. 230-some thousand uh, people. Uh, the fact is we're getting good economic data within some selected data that's pretty moldy. What is wrong with 150-some thousand? Yeah, nothing is wrong with that. That's actually, yeah. you know, it, that's that's a pretty good level. I, you know, we should be expecting that number to drop closer to 100,000 by the end of the year, the Fed does. And then at that point, that will be a very good number. So what we're seeing is a handoff from job creation uh, to wages. And that's that's what should be happening. It is happening. It's happening more slowly than many people thought. But, you know, just look at the, the data we got last week, which sort of confirms that uh, unit labor costs you know, were much higher than we thought. So you're getting these these confirming signals that are telling you that the labor market is getting tighter and tighter, and you have to expect the number of jobs created per month are going to continue to drop per month. That that moving average should be coming down pretty sharply. But you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing for you know for or a bad reflection on the economy. I guess to to Tom's point, 155, not a terrible number. The the Fed has indicated that it doesn't need uh, a mega number here to move. So if you if you look at the economy as a whole and what's put in place here, why isn't this enough? Do you think? Well, we've seen, I, you know, I call it uh, the Fed's campaign of forward misguidance. I mean, I, I think that continues. So if you just, you know, looked at what they've said for the last couple of years, of course, this type of number would keep, you know, the Fed would be moving. They would have moved already. Uh, but there's a big difference between, you know, what they say and, and, and what they've been doing. So, uh, you know, what it appears to us like is, is that the Fed is trying to engineer an overshoot of inflation. They can't say that. They won't say that. But they would be very happy. And everything they're doing, rather than what they're saying, suggests that's that's mm-hmm. what they're trying to accomplish. Uh, we think they'll get their wish because you know inflation is headed up, wages are headed up. We think you'll see uh, headline CPI going to the Fed's target, uh, you know, at the end of this year, beginning of next year. So they'll be, you know, and at that point they'll be running out of excuses for not moving. They may have to move, you know, quite a bit faster. Uh, because that that will probably make them nervous, even though that's what they're they're trying to accomplish. It will certainly make them a little bit more nervous, given how far away they are from neutral. What's your sense of of, of their awareness of of what's going on uh, with other central banks and the policy that they're implementing, and, and and also with the markets? We've been talking all morning about uh, the comments that Stan Fisher made about the, the Fed's awareness of of market movement based on what the, the Fed has been doing here. I know you've written extensively about, about negative interest rates. What's your sense of, of the Fed's awareness of that engagement with that? Well, it would seem that, that they're influenced by that. I mean, there's a fear, a fear of diverging too sharply from what other major central banks in the world are doing. And it's increasingly clear that there's going to be ongoing easing, probably additional moves coming from the Bank of Japan. We've seen recent moves from the Bank of England, and we're likely to see something soon from from the ECB. Yeah. So, you know, that's probably, uh, that weighs on them pretty heavily. You know, should they be diverging so sharply? They worry about that. Right now, there's sort of a cozy club of central bank thinking that keeps them on hold. But, you know, I, I just noticed this, folks. I've been a little remiss in this today. Gur is doing such a good job. I don't have to focus on it like I <laughs> usually do with McKee. Scott Mather, Joe Lavornia uh, points out the mother of all statistics I've just noted. I'm sorry I didn't get this earlier. Average weekly hours hmm. declined. That is, that's jaw-dropping to see. Yeah, that's the most important thing out of this employment report. And that's that's what, you know, uh, conveys perhaps wow. a level of weakness that, uh, you know, that will catch the Fed's eye. So that's why it's extremely unlikely that they go in September. They're going to want to see more data, as they say. Yeah, and, and David Gurr, I do a three-month moving average of, of average weekly hours, except for one moment in early 2014. We are back to 2011. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, Scott, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No other statistic matters. That That's just front and center. Uh, we think that's true out of this uh, yeah. employment report for sure. Yeah. I wonder when you when you dig into this, and we, here we are beginning to do that ourselves here. It just came out a little while ago. And you look at it sector by sector, you see diminishment in, in, in the energy sector as well. As you're strategizing, as you're looking at the, the portfolio there, what, what's the role of energy right now, uh, uh, you know, playing in the economy generally and, and when you look at the employment landscape as well? Well, the, the, the drag on the economy from the big drop in energy prices and the, and the drop in business investment is behind us. So increasingly, it's just a non-factor uh, going forward. It's not, it's not subtracting from growth the way it was. And we've probably seen as much of a boost to consumption as we're likely to see uh, from the consumer. So you know, we think it's pretty much a non-factor. And if oil's in the 40 to $50 range, which is sort of what we expect, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just rather un- unimportant uh, to the yeah. outlook. Scott Mather, thank you so much with PIMCO this morning. Greatly appreciate it. Uh, Chief Investment Officer, U.S. Core Strategies. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.